This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Hello and welcome to Heritage Matters, a programme brought to you by the Southern Heritage Trust and sponsored by Ryman Healthcare. I'm Dougal Stevenson. This week, Gregor Campbell looks at the Victorian habit of horsewhipping cats. We pay a tribute to a Dunedin drama pioneer, Bernard Esquilant, who died recently, and Anne Barraclough covers the 150th anniversary of the founding of Otago Girls High School. The concept of giving someone a horsewhipping seems these days to be a thing of Victorian melodrama. But it was a tactic for those who felt deserted by the legal system when seeking to right wrongs perpetrated by those who thought they were above the law, such as bottom-feeding journalists. The essential quality of a traditional horsewhipping was not necessarily pain. Humiliation was the goal. Therefore, the act needed to be a public one, if not in a public thoroughfare, at least in a place of business with witnesses. The whip itself, what these days we would call a riding crop rather than a stock whip, was as symbolic as practical. It placed the receiver of a horsewhipping in a position below human, that of livestock, to be punished. Often, the court appearance consequential on the act was the result sought by the whipper, who was able to explain on the record the actions of the whippee which had led to the scene. The first Dunedin horsewhipping was visited upon an accountant who felt himself free to comment upon the morals of his betters, as reported by The Colonist in October 1864. The past few days, the gossip mongers of Dunedin have had a rich dish of scandal to digest in the shape of a newspaper article of the most astonishing character, the subsequent horsewhipping of the writer, and, to add another to the long list of calamities of authorship, his arrest on Friday at last on a charge of libel. Everyone in Dunedin, and a good many people out of it, must have heard by this time of Mr J.G.S. Grant, the notorious Grant, as unfriendly paragraphers and hostile journalists delight to style him. Well, Mr Grant, as all the world ought to know by this time, is the editor of the Dunedin Saturday Review. And the Dunedin Saturday Review has had the honour of being the subject of a satirical sermon entitled Full-Flavoured Journalism in the London Saturday Review and the Melbourne Argus refuses to be comforted thereat and the Otago Mail calls Mr Grant's little paper an infamous periodical and the Daily Times alludes to it with a flout and a sneer as a publication to which we are not in the habit of referring in these columns. And to say all in a word, Mr Grant must be a perfect salamander to be able to stand the frightful roasting twixt upper, nether and surrounding fires which he has lately experienced at the hands of his indignant brethren of the Fourth Estate. But then, everybody who knows Mr Grant knows that this is precisely what he is. He is utterly impervious to the hottest of enemies' fires himself, and contrives to keep the town in a perfect ferment every Saturday, with the journalistic dramas which he serves on that day to all comers, hissing hot and so many degrees over proof. This, then, was the position of affairs up to Saturday the 24th alt, when Mr Grant published his 32nd number. 
that gay and festive class, as Artemis Ward hath it, the upper ten, had never encouraged Mr Grant's literary labours and never subscribed to his hissing hot hebdomadal. Respectability had never allowed the strong-minded, out-and-out, red-hot reforming organ on its table, though it is believed that respectability often bought it on the street and always read it. And thus it was stated, authoritatively, and very generally believed, that there were a thousand copies of Grant's paper sold every week. This, I say, was the state of matters on Saturday, the 24th alt. On the morning of that day, there appeared in the Saturday Review an article which set the ears of Dunedin society tingling. It was a dirty piece of work, from which any clean-minded man must have shrunk. It was entitled, The School for Scandal. Of course, it fluttered the town and proved a most successful draw, selling the whole issue out in an hour or two. But at what a sacrifice! Private character was assailed. Ladies of position were charged with being the naughty Mrs. M or N, as the case may be. And male delinquents were publicly branded as gay Lotharios. Of a married lady, it was asserted she prefers the society of a young fellow of her own age and may be seen with him in the boxes of a theatre. She prefers Saturday night for visiting the opera as it prepares her mind for her devotions next day. Another was counselled, with a Mrs. Candor generosity, to discourage the overtures and repel the importunities of a certain swinish roué. A married couple, the husband holding a responsible public office, was advised to retract from their evil ways, lest we should be tempted to publish their history and the particulars of the very circumstances under which they were married. And so on, usque ad nauseam. Enough of a most offensive topic to say that surely nothing more ghastly, nothing fouler in the shape of a libel upon poor weak humanity was ever penned since the time when the satirist alternately sighed away and scragged reputations by wholesale. No manly Englishman. No man endowed with a spark of honest feeling, but must have thrown down the paper in disgust, blushing with shame the while at this glaring violation of public decency, this flagrant outrage on truth and manhood. Of course, the paper was in great inquiry and sold like smoke. Never, perhaps, was there a more urgent demand for a newspaper than there appeared to exist in this city for number 32 of the Saturday Review on Saturday week last. Next morning, Mr Grant might truly be said to have woke up and found himself, well, famous. His publication, his antecedents, and his possible fate were now more canvassed by the quidnuncs than I ever remember the most exciting news by the mail to have been. The most startling anecdotes, all belonging decidedly to the chronique scandaleuse, were in circulation. The latest eccentricity, and eccentricity, however, which bordered upon impropriety, imputed to one of our Dunedin bells, was giving rise to a great many comments. An unfortunate éclaircissement had been made in the household of a Benedict of position, who had been found out by his wife, enacting the part of a gallant gay Lothario. 
This sort of thing lasted till the Tuesday morning. Prurient minds were busy conceiving what prurient tongues would afterwards utter. On the 27th alt, however, a change came over the spirit of the scene. A Mr. Turton, a solicitor here, about noon of that day came into contact with Mr. A.G. McComb, an accountant, and on his acknowledging the authorship of the article entitled The School for Scandal, produced a horsewhip and soundly castigated him. The same evening at the theatre, Mr. McComb was roughly expelled from the building. I was ill and not able to be there at the time and am therefore quite unable to give any account of the knockdowns, etc. But I am informed that this last proceeding was conducted in an un-English and undesirable manner, several young men being together concerned in assaulting the object of popular indignation. Mr. Grant was also roughly handled on the same occasion. The events that followed are to be related in a few words. On Friday afternoon, Mr. McComb, who had taken his passage per SS Queen for the North, was arrested at Port Chalmers on a criminal information for libel. The criminal information was sworn by Edward George Edwards, clerk in orders, and charged McComb that on the 24th September at Dunedin, he did unlawfully and maliciously cause to be published a certain false, scandalous and defamatory libel of and concerning the said Edward George Edwards, contrary to the statute. Mr Edwards is the Church of England clergyman here. The result is that McComb has been committed for trial before the Supreme Court and has been liberated on bail of £200 on his own recognisances and of another surety for a like sum. The court sequel to the opera scene was enacted seven months later, as reported in the Nelson Colonist. The late horsewhipping case in Dunedin Theatre. Prolific in action at law had been the forcible ejection from a Dunedin theatre and subsequent hustling and horsewhipping of Alexander George McComb, accountant, who is the author of a shameful and libelous attack on the character of some ladies and gentlemen in Dunedin, published in a scurrilous print, since dead, made himself obnoxious to the public of the city, some of whom took the strong arm of the law into their own hands, and showed their opinion of the writer by turning him out of the theatre after he was well hissed and hooted. McComb has just obtained a verdict in his favour on an action claiming damages of £1,000 from Mr Charles D. Teshmaker, who inflicted punishment on McComb, struck him on the head with the flap of a riding whip, and knocked him down. £15 was paid in court as being full compensation. The defence was that plaintiff had insulted and libelled friends of the defendant, but the judge held that an assault committed on a man's friend on a former occasion did not warrant another assault, otherwise there would be no end of breaches of the peace and personal violence. The remedy lay in the law, and not in the hands of individuals. The jury found a verdict for the plaintiff, damages £235, in addition to the £15 paid into court. This is, of course, besides costs, which will no doubt be at least £100 more. I am the so far uncastigated Gregor Campbell for Heritage Matters. Bernard Esquilant and his companion William Menlove formed the Southern Comedy Players, 
a pathfinding group of thespians who in the 50s and 60s brought a whiff of culture to small towns around Otago and New Zealand. Two years ago, we brought you a story by Judith Southworth about the comedy players. Bernard recently died, aged 94, and as a tribute to him, we've decided to rerun an excerpt of him from that programme. The Southern Comedy Players were set up in 1957 and travelled around New Zealand until 1969. Bernard Esquilent and Bill Menlove based their company in Dunedin, where they still live. I talked with them about their life in those days, and Bernard began by explaining the way they organised their travel routines. Uh, we had two vehicles. We had a large truck, uh, which uh, carried the scenery, an enclosed pantechnicon-type thing. And uh, there were driver as well as a couple of members of the cast uh, would travel with the driver. And apart from that, we had a combi uh, Volkswagen, uh, which could seat nine people, so that uh, we, restri- we were restricted uh, at that early stage to uh, a total complement of, say, about 12. They quickly found that comedies were preferred to more serious productions, such as Noel Coward's Private Lives. Which was too sophisticated for our country audiences. Uh, We had a superb cast that was headed by uh, John Hunter and Rilla Stevens. Now, John Hunter had been with the Kiwi Concert Party for many years, and he was a very accomplished performer. And Rilla Stevens, who played the female lead, was a Dunedin girl who had her drama training in London, and she was extremely good uh, in the role. Uh, But it was too sophisticated for our country audiences. So then we reverted to a jolly good comedy a play called Sailor Beware. And Sailor Beware was our play, the first production by Graham Clifford. Now, Graham Clifford was a very interesting character because he had been the principal comedian and baritone with the Doily Cart Opera Company in London. So, Bernard, how do you see your contribution to theatre in New Zealand? Well, I think, looking back, we pioneered a small professional theatre company uh, on a regional basis, which survived for 12 years. And in doing so, we established what at that time was a record for a professional theatre company in New Zealand. The New Zealand players had collapsed for a number of reasons. So that was, in a sense, I think, a feather in our cap. I think we succeeded because we slogged at what we did. And I think, ultimately, after Southern Players first became, uh, they, uh, they dropped the name Comedy and just became the name Southern Players, and then later... They were formed as a Southern Theatre Trust. And I think it failed for the simple reason that there was no one left who was prepared to 
slog in the way that Bill and I had done. And I think that has to be, I think, a feather in our cap. I'm all a small feather in a small cap. The late Bernard Esquinant talking with Judith Southworth. This year, Otago Girls High School celebrates its sesquicentennial anniversary, having opened on Monday the 6th of February, 1871. The celebrations will be held at Labour Weekend. The school has a long and colourful history. Two of Anne Barraclough's daughters and three granddaughters attended the school, and Anne served a term on the board. Here she gives us an account of the school's early history. Otago Girls High was the first girls' secondary school in the Southern Hemisphere. Today this may seem surprising, but we need to remember that education for women itself was in its infancy 150 years ago. In England, Cheltenham Ladies College had opened only in 1853, with great difficulty finding female teachers, as universities were restricted to males only. Education in Scotland was more highly prized than in England, and Dunedin, being a Scottish settlement, benefited from the advanced thinking on education of our early city fathers, whose education ordinance of 1856 recommended a secondary school for both boys and girls. When seven years later Otago Boys High was opened, in August 1863, the idea of a girls' high was pushed along by a remarkable Scottish woman, Learmonth White Dalrymple, whose family had come to New Zealand in 1853. Although the Otago Daily Times was a strong supporter of women's education, this was not generally popular with the public. Miss Dalrymple wrote between 700 to 800 letters throughout the following years, drumming up interest, emphasising the importance of education for women, as they had great influence over children, although she drew the line at the poorer classes. A school which would be accessible to the middle and wealthier classes of the colony. After unsuccessfully trying to put a petition to the Provincial Council, she approached the superintendent, Mr MacAndrew, through his wife. Mr MacAndrew asked Mr Hislop, Secretary of the Education Board, to sketch proposals, which were presented to the Provincial Council in 1868. The superintendent set up an education commission. A debate ensued, on the merits of co-ed versus single-sex high schools. A public meeting was held, following which a detailed proposal for a girls' high, similar to the boys' high, was presented to the Education Commission. This was well received, and at a special meeting of the Education Board in June 1870, Mrs Margaret Gordon Byrne of Geelong was appointed the first principal with Annie McDowell, a local Scottish governess, as her assistant. There is no doubt that the amazing and determined single woman, Miss Learmonth Dalrymple, brought forward the founding of Otago Girls High School far earlier than would have been the case without her efforts. The girls' school occupied the south wing of the boys' high school, with a fence dividing off the playground. The school was an imposing building in Dowling Street with six Greek columns along the front. From the outset, there was pressure for the boys' high to establish a hostel and a rectory for the headmaster. 
The building was unsatisfactory for one school, let alone two, but the girls, including boarders, remained in the building for 40 years. It was poorly ventilated and the drains stank. By 1881, the role had risen to the extent that the dormitories had to be taken over as classrooms. The boys' high role had risen to 305, and this and the rising girls' role created pressure to relocate the boys to a site on Arthur Street occupied by the Lunatic Asylum. Seacliff Hospital was being built, and building the new boys' school on the site commenced even before the asylum had been vacated. The boys moved in on 10th of February 1885. After the boys left, the girls' boarding establishment was able to reopen. In the 1870s, James Adam, writing of life in the south of New Zealand, wrote of Girls High, This establishment has been in existence for some years and has been a complete success. Indeed, it has eclipsed the relative institution of the boys as it's had a fairer start and a more hearty cooperation from the beginning. The inhabitants generally face a higher education to their daughters than is given by the same class of persons in Britain. In 1875, the inspector's report, based on the provincial scholarship papers, pronounced that all were creditable and many excellent, adding... The course of study pursued by the school is wide and comprehensive and vastly superior to that gone through in most seminaries for ladies. The girls did not stay at school long. In 1876, for example, of the 195 on the roll, two-thirds were new pupils. Mrs Burns' health had been declining, and in December 1884 she went on a year's paid leave, later accepting the position of first principal of the new Waitaki Girls High School. She was followed by Mr Alexander Wilson, who was paid almost twice as much as Mrs Byrne. He went on to be rector of Boys High and then editor of the Otago Daily Times. He was replaced by 26-year-old Miss Maria Elsie Marchant. The academic standard remained high. In 1890, a pupil won first place on the university junior scholarship list, and the past five years' Duxes had all won university scholarships. As the number of boarders declined in following years, Miss Marchant advised abandoning the boarding hostel, and Mrs E.B. Miller of London Street took in girls as boarders privately for a while, but efforts to re-establish the hostel in 1918, 25, 37 and 46 were unsuccessful. Pressure increased to acquire better premises. The chairman of the Education Board's description of the building was extremely scathing, but money was tight. The Otago Daily Times in August 1907 declared at great length the school a disgrace to Dunedin. A shabby ruin, rickety and damp. The district health officer said he had condemned the building as insanitary and unsafe a year before. The government agreed to contribute towards a new school. Edmund Anscombe won a competition to design it. A tender for £7,902 was accepted and the new building, 
on much the same site, had commenced by the start of 1910, classes moving in while building was still underway. It was fresh and clean, but lacked an assembly hall and rooms for domestic science, drawing, commercial subjects and lunch. Exhausted, Miss Marchant resigned at the end of 1911 and died in 1919. Further excellent principals have come and gone, and the school has consistently gained high academic results and produced outstanding alumni. Lack of a boarding hostel, playing grounds and swimming pool have been issues. Mrs Hildrack's property on Highgate, then owned by the hospital board, was bought by the school in 1923 for a hostel, but was not developed. It is now Yvette Williams' retirement home and part of Columba College. During the principalship of Greta Firth in 1985, it became more than apparent when a piece of building fell on a pupil that the original block, designed by Edmund Anscombe, had become old and dilapidated. Strong arguments were put forward either to demolish or strengthen and modernise the building, a forceful argument being that, though meant to be brother and sister schools, Girls High felt very much the poor relation, especially after the Boys High's new classroom block and development of the early 1980s. The conservationists won out. The older buildings were strengthened and modernised and the new Mary King Wing, designed by Ted McCoy, was built along Tennyson Street. The school subsequently bought land adjacent to the old Otago Polytechnic building for tennis courts and a sports building. Today, inequalities still exist between the sibling schools. Boys High sits on six and a half acres, while Girls High is on only two nor does Girls High have a boarding hostel. Girls High will probably always be struggling for space, but this will be of little consequence to the girls, who, true to their uplifting motto, Recti Cultus Pectora Roberant, have had the right education, which has made their hearts as strong as oak. I am Anne Barraclough, reporting for Heritage Matters. I'm grateful for a most rare vision by Irene Wallace, Above the City by Rory Sweetman and Dunedin Library's newspaper cuttings on Otago Girls High. This programme, which will be repeated on Sunday at 7pm, is kindly sponsored by Ryman Healthcare and brought to you by the Southern Heritage Trust. Ryman Healthcare prides itself on offering some of the most resident-friendly terms in New Zealand. Ryman Healthcare's Francis Hodgkins and Yvette Williams Retirement Villages in Dunedin offer the very best of retirement living and care. For more information and to discuss your retirement living options, please phone Kate on 455-7936. Ryman Healthcare. Supporting Southern Heritage Trust and the Heritage Matters Programme. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.